0: Good morning, good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on The Offensive Podcast. Just me from Lace Partners, Chris Howard today. I don't have a partner in crime, but I don't need a partner in crime for this one because I've got the lovely Gary Stringer from How now. and Gary and I, we've done a couple of podcasts where it's just the two of us. No, I'm not going to sing the Will Smith song or that other version that I was a cover of. I think Will Smith did, but I'm certainly not going to break into any song about duets, just the two of us.
1: Gary, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Chris. Don't worry. I'll be your, your partner in crime today. And uh, thanks for having me back on the show. It's lovely to have you on the show. It's lovely to have you on. So, we're going to talk about a piece that
0: you wrote for How Now. But before we get into all of that, just on the off chance, there might be one or two people that maybe didn't hear the previous podcast or they've kind of maybe heard about How Now, but maybe not. Can you give our listeners just a bit of a flavor as to what you guys do at How Now? And then we'll get into the number of the trends piece for 2023 that you put together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, for those people who don't know about How Now, How Now is a learning experience platform and LXP that is designed to solve the big problem a lot of companies don't realize they have, which is a lack of engagement. So a lot of the time when learning's not happening at companies, they presume it's a problem with the content or uh, something that maybe happens further down the line. But the first port of call is engagement. Our CEO, Nelson, has a great saying that learning without engagement is like a car with no wheels. It's not going anywhere. So before you can do anything, you need to engage people. And that is the way the platform is built, really. So from anything like integrating with tools you use every day, like Slack, into Common Salesforce, so you can find information you need when you need it, to tapping into your internal experts, So people can create contextual knowledge that can be applied better in the flow of work, all those little things. And yeah, if people want to know a little bit more, get hownow.com and you can kind of hear a bit more about what we do and who we are cool let's get into the numbers because
0: you guys yeah. have written a really interesting trends piece i really wanted to talk about it. seven hr trends you'll wish you read before 2023 a bit in brackets but will still help if you left it late we are not in 2023 of course when this podcast goes out we'll still be just in the uh, the embers of 2022 but can we just go through some of those seven trends and just yeah. get if you can just give us a bit of a flavor as to some of them let's start with the first one which i think it will resonate with a lot of people but yeah. hr to start listening more or at least show it is give us a little bit of an overview of what you guys were saying and some of the research that you got from that
1: yeah so this really comes off the back of a tivian report that i read it essentially showed me two interesting things one there's a disconnect between how hr think they're using feedback and what their employees think so 85 percent of hr staff think they're using feedback to improve the employee experience but only 50 percent of employees agree and then 14 of employees well only 14 believe that their employer uses feedback to drive real change so Essentially, there's two things that happen in there. There's kind of a, a skepticism with the way that feedback's currently used, because when it is being captured, we're not communicating effectively what we're doing with it. And that was manifesting itself in this other statistic that 70% said that they believe they had little or no influence on the way things are done at their company. So yeah, it's either feedback isn't being collected in a way that allows it to be used, or when it is being used, it's not being communicated how people's thoughts and the comments they're sharing are being used to drive real change so yeah that was kind of the big issue and i think what we we're trying to allude to in the piece is that the way we can tackle this is by creating positive feedback loops around feedback so when you are collecting feedback and using it from people if you're showing that there's value in doing it then people are more likely to do it in the future so I think that's kind of where a lot of this was coming from it was a case of how do we define feedback collecting moving forward and what do we do in terms of how we communicate how we're using feedback so another maybe part of the piece we're looking at here is how do we define or look at listening moving forward so if we want to do it authentically there'll be channels we can look at where people are sharing their thoughts and feedback organically without us having to necessarily go down the of sending out surveys collecting big batches of data and then trying to action stuff on a big scale there'll be slack Mm -hmm. channels where people are sharing just day-to-day stuff that's a frustration for them there might be some way of in your internal tools where you can look at the terms people are searching for a lot of the time in the analytics and if you constantly see the same things are coming up like how do i manage stress how do i manage my time better those are ways you can kind of proactively listen without having to go through those more formal channels and therefore you can action the feedback before a problem gets out of hand but yeah in summary i guess it's kind of using feedback more effectively to work out what the root cause is not just what the symptoms are and then therefore communicating when you are tackling those root causes with people in a more succinct and value adding kind of way
0: yeah it's a really interesting point and in my head the phrase almost for me once shame on me for me twice shame on you comes and that's how i kind of view if people want my feedback and I give it to them. I mean, with anything in life, really, someone asks for feedback, you give it to them, and then you don't believe anything's going to happen. First time it happens, okay. But if someone then does that again, I'm going to be thinking to myself, well, hold on a second, I've already given you this information, or I've already given you my thoughts, you're not going to act on it. So what's the
1: point? So it completely devalues it. I'm just gonna say on top of that, I was having a conversation with someone about this. And one thing that came out of it was a lot of the time people are using a tool to collect feedback, whether it's like SurveyMonkey, um, Peacon, like those kind of ones. And a lot of the times they get caught up in the wrong metric, which is, how many times have people completed this survey? And that shows value in us having the tool. The value in the tool actually is what's the feedback that's coming out of it and what performance metrics does it help us change? What internal employee satisfaction metrics does it help us change? So it's really, I guess it's that kind of mindset. And like you said, if you're just constantly sending me this thing and asking me to do it every month through some sort of platform and there's no value or personal side to it or kind of a motive where you're tapping into it, then the way I respond to that question over time is going to diminish in quality. So if it's six months in and you're still sending me these short surveys and nothing's happening then i'm going to answer them in about 30 seconds i'm just going to put in a two-word answer and probably people do see that when they have this problem in the company that feedback's not being actioned or there is that skepticism i mentioned they will be finding that every time they get a survey maybe if it's on a scale of one to ten it might be the sixes and sevens because people really aren't taking the time because they can't see the value or if they're sending you the sort of sentences and paragraph answers they will just be one or two words like bad culture poor management poor leadership there really isn't going to be much in there so yeah positive feedback loops will help in that sense
0: Yeah, and I guess the more engaged a workforce is, the more you're going to get that feedback. So just to your point there, if you've got a very engaged workforce that believe in what they're doing and they believe in what their employer is pushing out and they have that positive experience of their time working within that business, they're going to give more robust feedback because they're going to want to be able to have their input to make improvements to the business.
1: Yeah. And that's how, like, if you can find something you can narrow down on that's a quick win. Like, if people keep saying that we want just to work on core hours and then have flexibility, and that's a small piece of feedback you collect and a small thing you can action where you just say, okay, from now on, we work between 10 till four. As long as you're online for those hours and you do your rest of the hours, the rest of the time, that's a quick way. Like, it's time to value. You're showing people that feedback does have a positive response in a short amount of time. And the more you build up that bank of evidence that it works. So, yeah, you don't need to necessarily reinvent the wheel or revamp everything you do at your company to prove that feedback works you could just pick up on one or two small things a good example might be I saw a recent research from Microsoft and now their meetings are going to take by default they'll start at five past the hour because there was some internal research that showed that people were just rushing from meeting to meeting and that they just didn't have time to decompress between each one so now if it starts at five past that is a small change from a logistical perspective but it does show that feedback and employee well-being is being taken into account so yeah completely agree
0: yeah and productivity there has an impact as well because you're actually getting people to say look you've got your time you can arrive for the meeting at this time you can be prepared and we can actually have a more productive meeting as a result right let's move on to the second one because there are seven and we obviously want to get through as many as we possibly can today performance management to actually be about performance management in development in 2023 so what's all that
1: about yeah i guess to sum it up in short it was that the focus of performance management had shifted towards productivity and engagement so 41 percent of hr directors saying productivity and engagement was their focus and development itself had really slipped down the pecking order it was at a three-year low so only 31% of HR directors were focusing on development and I guess the reason I was including this because coming out from an L&D mindset it seems a little bit short-sighted that thinking that focusing on productivity is going to drive performance and people's development because people motivated by doing meaningful work so performance development obviously the more we can make give you the skills to do better at your job the better you're able to influence the company goals and reach your own goals so yeah just that mindset that focusing on people's productivity Isn't the same as focusing on people's performance and actually focusing on performance allows us to create better goals and deliver learning in a better way that moves the needle. In the same way, people are engaged. When we talk about productivity and engagement, people are engaged when they're learning new skills. So again, if we're focusing on development, we're giving people new skills that keep them relevant, that make sure that they are productive, that they are contributing to the company in a more meaningful way. And... I guess it just means also we can focus more on how we move the needle. So I think my big bugbear with this was maybe that thinking about productivity can drive us down the route of vanity metrics, whereas focusing on performance and people development can actually really help us drive the needle in meaningful ways. So maybe an example might be that we decide from a productivity standpoint that we want to close more tickets in our customer support team. So we put in some place some sort of productivity hack or some sort of tool that reduces the amount of time it takes you to close it. And if we look at it in that metric, we might be happy with ourselves. But actually, that doesn't give us any indication of whether the customer is happier with the resolution so we might be resolving more calls are in but the customers might be a lot less happy we might be defining what resolution looks like in the wrong way because we have this productivity mindset as opposed to focusing on performance and i think that is kind of it if we can focus on performance over just productivity we'll probably nail the real metrics that matter so i think it was just that problem with the performance development kind of angle of it really sliding so far down compared to where productivity was and if we focus on performance people will be productive and engaged as a byproduct, as opposed to to just going in with this productivity first mindset
0: yep absolutely spot on and we've recently written a piece kathy one of my co-founders has written a piece which is called productivity it's about outputs not inputs that yeah. kind of touches on some of the things that you were talking about there i'm putting a hr director's hat on what can hr do because of course you're talking about performance management but a lot of that is driven by the line managers themselves isn't it so what's hr's role in this
1: I guess more of a facilitator. So it's working out what the actual challenges people are focusing on every day or encountering every day versus what are those metrics they assume are the ones that matter. So again, we might be saying that the sales cycle is too long because we don't close enough deals. But then when we speak to people and we look at the real data and really dive down into the problems they're facing, we might find out that the pipeline isn't strong enough or the trial period lasts too long and that's influencing it. So I suppose it's that real diagnosing a problem and defining a problem better helps you win over management managers because you're going to help them move the needle in the terms of the objectives they really need to reach as opposed to just saying yes or no to requests for what they're asking for
0: yeah No, spot on. Right, let's move on to the next one, which is around finally settling on flexible working arrangements that work for everyone. Now, this is fascinating. And the reason I'm saying it's fascinating is we've just completed, well, at the time of this recording going out, it will have just been completed, but it might have been out a few weeks when we actually released this podcast that we're doing today. We've just released a piece called HR's One Big Thing. We asked 30 CPOs, what's your kind of one thing that you'd love to fix in the next 12 to 24 months? And the second most popular response was around flexible. Working and it was getting that right because we had the pandemic period where everybody went away and was stuck at home. We've then come out of that, and then people are trying to work out what's the balance that we get. And so, can you just touch on what you guys were talking about there? And is it very, very similar to that? Problems that many of our CPOs that we've spoken to are facing?
1: Yeah, I think it's the real issue is that there's a disconnect still between how people work and learn remote versus in person. And I guess some people reading and hearing about trends will be frustrated that some of the stuff that was on the list during the like peak COVID trend stuff is still popping up. But the reason is, is because like your research probably alluded to, we still haven't settled on a way to do it effectively that works for everyone. So there were just two stats that I would like to point out. One is that 54% of remote employees were struggling to find time to learn. And that was only a problem for 39% of in-person employees. And then on a smaller scale, remote employees, 12% named finding an appropriate space to learn as a challenge compared to just 6% in person. So there's not consistent experiences for people in how they, work and learn despite the fact that we're now a few you know we're kind of two coming into three years into this move towards hybrid work and we still haven't focused on and settled on consistent ways of doing it and i guess the biggest thing for us coming at it from a how now perspective and an lnd perspective is whether people are using tech in the right ways to provide consistent experiences so it might be that people could still be having meetings in person and then uploading the recordings online for people and thinking that that is a solution that works for everyone. But that's where that disparity is coming from, because the people who are just learning online or remotely, they are kind of like second class citizens. They don't get to participate in the initial meeting in the same way. They don't get to ask questions. They don't get to influence the discussion. They don't get to bounce off of people in real time and experience it in the same way. And tech is a great leveler for that, because you could, in theory, if you have a platform that allows us, upload the deck that you're going to talk through in that presentation. Say it's like a brand relaunch and we've got this deck and we're going to talk to you about why we're relaunching it. What does it look like? Not to plug how now, but in how now you could upload that deck as a shared resource for everyone to be able to look at ahead of time or look at in real time, load it up on your screen, flick through as people are doing it. So we could run it as a hybrid and in-person thing, and therefore everyone would have the same access to how they work and learn. And I guess coming back to the stat itself, are we adding everything in one central place? That means it's consistent. So again, mm-hmm. do we have a central brain for everything in our company or is resources, are they still scattered? Because if they're still scattered, that helps drive this disparity as well, because if we work in person, I can lean on you in real time to say, do you know where this is saved? Versus if I'm working remotely, I might need to slack you. There could be time differences and it just delays me finding that resource that I need. So I think the big question to ask is, are we using tech in a way that drives consistency or are we doing it in a way that drives convenience? Because it's easy for us to think this works for both people, remote and in-person and just plow ahead with something that's more convenient to us. But you have to start with that point of does this work for both people as we build the experience or the meeting or the team day or whatever it is. So I think that is probably why it's still on the list now. We've not nailed it still at this point.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of companies are going to still be struggling with that. Balance as they try to get things, particularly those where you've got lots of unconnected workers or you've got lots of different sort of hubs of offices and different locations, because they all have different ways in which they're delivering learning to people. Or there'll be some people that will naturally bounce off of each other and learn in a different yeah. way. And if you're based in the office in Manchester compared to the office in London type thing, yeah. and it's an interesting one that I think will run along. There'll be still be a lot of debate about how do we get this balance right. And I think linking on to actually the fourth trend that you guys have picked out, which is the reassessment of a company culture's role and importance. I think these two are linked as well, because I've certainly noticed this with businesses, friends that I work with, where they're talking about how their culture has shifted post-pandemic and the companies, you know, what their company culture has been, how it's changed, how you've got some people in the office all the time now, some people not, and it's that flexible type thing. But can you just touch on that bit, the reassessment of a company culture's role and importance and what you guys are talking about in it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. These last two are linked and there's a good stat actually that kind of bridges the two that's not in the piece, but basically 90% of employees are frustrated by their current tech and 50% think legacy tech is holding them back. So to link back to that last point about learning, the tech isn't designed to solve the problems we're facing today. More than half of your employees are frustrated with old tech because the tech isn't designed to solve the problems we're facing today. It was your previous problems. And that's probably why we're seeing this disconnect between how tech is used. But in the same way, the way we consume our company culture isn't the same anymore. So maybe some of the tech and processes you have in place is aligned to the way it used to be, but it's not anymore. And this was actually my favorite one that I read about because the shift was so vast. So I think it was December 2019, people said that they were 10 times more likely to stay at a company for the relationships than they were for the money. Fast forward to this year, it's a complete 180. So there was a Captera study that showed job satisfaction factors. Relationships with coworkers and managers was dead last at 11% and compensation was streaks ahead at 42%. So it, the pendulum has completely swung in the other direction. And they, I just found that so interesting because we're only talking about three years. That's not a long time. Now we've got people mm-hmm. saying that they really don't care about whether they're building relationships with people one is how we consume culture and the value of culture in terms of a company has changed and there's a few reasons for this i found it across a few different reports but one is that remote employees just said they were less connected to culture kind of seems a bit of an obvious one but i think the research backing up does show that if we're not working from home culture just means a different thing to us more than half of the people working remotely said that they were unlikely or minimally likely to attend voluntary company events in the future as well so when you think about culture is a lot of times something we build around shared events and shared experiences but if you're starting off from a point where people have a inherent negativity bias towards doing those events, you know, like, I don't want to leave the house to go and do this because it's less convenient for me compared to someone in the office going to an event after. I think that was playing a part. And then one thing actually that was particularly interesting is that we're seeing a lot of redundancies happening. and this will link to another trend later but large-scale high volume redundancies are happening and people are working in those companies of high turnover are just saying that it's less worthwhile for them to get to know their colleagues and build relationships with people because who knows how long they're going to be there right I can invest my energy and my time in better ways so yeah there was a real worrying shift in terms of how much people view culture now that has a spillover effect onto everything right like even when you write job descriptions where you're trying to attract talent think about the amount of times you saw like people celebrating the culture as one of the reasons to join or we're like a family here or um you know the team's great leading with that as a kind of point to attract people that even that from the get-go could be suffering as a result of the fact that people just want to consume culture and, and the company in a different way now on their terms it seems to be
0: yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. So from a HR perspective, kind of what's HR's role in all of this then? Yeah,
1: I think this is the most cop-out answer for this trend. But from the, the way I was reading this and interpreting it, it has to be fixed on an individual company level. I think every company needs to start with that internal conversation about what does culture mean to our people, actually, and how what is the split between remote and in person employees do they view it differently even you know this doesn't mean that our in person employees don't also want to experience culture in a different way now so starting with that internal research speaking to your end customer we often have this conversation at how now about L&D needs to treat employees as like a customer of a product right they're the consumer they're the end user of our product and i guess HR can apply a similar mindset if we were trying to sell what we're doing to that end user From a culture perspective, we would go out and canvas them and say, culturally, what are your biggest challenges right now? What would you like us to do more of in terms of culture? What would we do less? How would culture help you do your job better? All those kind of questions to be asked on a small scale, but also maybe those wider research and sentiment pieces to work out how big of a problem is this? How are we going to tackle it in a way that makes sense? Because I guess if you try and follow a one-size thing here, you won't be authentic. And if you're not authentic, you also won't do any anything good in terms of winning people back over to how they want to experience their culture. So, yeah, I would do that. Canvas people internally, really work out where your problems lie in this area. You might not even have them. It might be a luxury that people still love your culture and you've built something great. But think about how you can do something on brand, authentic, and then also give people the option to consume it on their own terms, you know. A lot of the time, people... we, might, we we, we, lots of time we talk about inclusivity and we want it to be across the board right you know if the social was just something you don't want to do for example if someone invited me to a da- like dance class in front of everyone uh, which was mooted at a few points and i was getting worried about my my job security or how now whether i'd have to leave or not um, rather than do a zumba class in front of people but if that was on the table i just wouldn't want to do it that way right and it, it's how do we make it so it works for everyone especially with the in-person and, and remote divide
0: Nice. And if anybody does want to see Gary Duesenberg, then just uh, put it in the comments or drop us a note. And uh, if we can canvas enough opinions, maybe uh, maybe we'll get him doing it for charity or something. Only, gets, um... Of course, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Yeah. Do you know, it's really interesting what you were just talking about, the employee, kind of seeing the employee as the customer. And this is something yeah. that at LACE, we've talked about quite a lot. We talk about it in our HR Shared Services Trends report, how you know HR Shared Services teams can perhaps adopt a more similar mindset to those customer services teams yeah. that you get when they're engaged internal staff and I think certainly there's something in that from our perspective as well we recently did a podcast with um, an employee experience scientist called Kevin Campbell who works for Qualtrics and we talked about that idea of having that customer sort of centric mindset but from an internal lens to yeah. deliver on employee experience I, I think that's that's really really important and, and interesting an interesting angle that certainly I think I'm hearing lots more within the HR community. I want to move us on to the fifth Of the seven, which is onboarding to finally get itself together and an end to job description catfishing. I love the title. Talk me through it, Gary.
1: This one was fascinating because there was just so much to unpack. So uh, all of these reports are linked in the blog post, which we can put in the show notes and people can go find the source of the stats themselves. But there was a Cezanne HR report that told me a lot of things. One, people just thought job descriptions were misleading, which is never the great starting point. And that's the whole point of the catfishing. If you think you're coming in to do one thing and you're actually doing something completely different, then that is such a horrible feeling. I'm sure people have experienced that on a small scale, but it takes a lot to join a new a new company, start a new role, and if you you don't want to have those itchy feet or that doubt from the start. And um, that was just one of the stats, but people who were onboarding remotely said it was stressful or it left them feeling isolated. And then I think the worst of all was that only half of employees felt capable of doing their job at the end of onboarding process. There's a lot of different things there that need unpacking and putting back together in a way that makes sense because I, I think as well, there was another stat, I don't know if it written down here, but it was leading people to question their choice in jobs as well. So all of these things were adding together, people were isolated. It didn't feel productive to do their job at the end they felt misled from the start and they were questioning how they would choose jobs moving forward so onboarding still has a long way to go even though again it's been on the list since probably mid-pandemic and we're still you know mid-2020 2021 22 23 it's still rumbling on the list but I guess there was a few things we could probably do in terms of HR and L&D that make that uh, we could kind of alleviate that problem in 2023 and moving forward so I guess it would just be starting with a good job description from the very off so but I mean, some companies I'm seeing it now, they're still I think they're still got their job description template from pre pandemic where they're mentioning like uh, free lunches on Fridays and things like this. When in the same job description, they're saying we're a hybrid company. So maybe it's just that. Be really brutally honest with yourself. What needs to be in this job description? And I guess it would be that end that thing about what might this person need to do versus what will this person do that has impact. I can only speak personally, but I would much rather have a five point bullet point job description than a 15 of all the things that might encompass my job. And it's just, these are the five things you're going to be responsible for. This is the impact that's going to have total clarity from the start.
0: I think it's interesting if I think back to every single job description I've ever got and then I've actually gone on to get the job my job has never actually truly taken that form it always evolves and changes and so recognizing that and maybe even communicating that to people that look this is just almost like your starter for 10 um, you know that's a that's something to consider I think it's interesting what you're talking about with the onboarding side of it at LACE we talk a lot about employee value proposition and Kathy our co-founder often talks about the, what she calls the deal and that is effectively you know what is the deal that yeah. i as an employer am putting to you which is going to want to keep you engaged keep you keep you motivated and driving within your business part of that Small part of that is those when you join us. So it's obviously the 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 employer brand side, which is why you join the company. But then once you've joined the company, the onboarding process is all going to be packaged up as part of that experience that you have and your life cycle at the business that you're working in. And if that is a positive experience, then it's gonna go and have a knock on effect when you're you know six months a year into that role and yeah. so i think that's really important and it almost becomes like we said it's part of that deal um, yeah. as i i'm using sort of air, air quotes. quotes with my hands and realizing that we're on a podcast and yeah. nobody's realizing that so i'm just articulating that yeah. for our listeners no, um,
1: no, i know some of the things you said there are so true like one is to communicate and what's actually happening at this company at this time right so like you said the start for 10 type stuff but also like amount of times you apply for a job and then you go through the conversation the first thing and they say this is the first time we're having this role in the company it's our first head of HR it's our first head of people you're our first L&D hire stuff like that gets left off the job description which is great context one affects the quality of candidates you get but it just gives that transparency from the off and it's often because it's only mentioned in the call it's not on the job description and we talk a lot of the time in learning about adding more context so it can be applied but you know, if you treat your job description the same way, context, where are you going to be applying this? How are you going to be doing it? What are the goals we want you, you to get to in the first three months, the first six months, the first nine months, rather than just like, what are the functions we want you to do? And like thinking in a marketing perspective, we often talk about the features tell and the benefits sell. And when we do the job descriptions in this way, we're just listing the features rather than benefits slash outcomes and it comes back to what you said about output earlier and then i guess the other thing actually made me think about was life cycle a lot of the time we're only collecting feedback at the end of someone's onboarding experience right the f- end of the first three months or six weeks or however long it is but onboarding should be designed to get people up to scrape, uh, speed to do their job and if we only collect feedback at the end of the onboarding experience before they've actually done their job independently for it extended period of time, we actually have no real indication whether onboarding has been effective, right? So if we wait until the nine month mark, and then you come to me, I was having this conversation with someone more intelligent than me, this isn't wholly my point, but they were telling me that if in nine months we say, reflecting back now on your onboarding experience, and now you've done your job for nine months. How well did it actually set you up for the job you're doing today? Were there things that we wish we did more of, less of? Were there things that were completely irrelevant? Were there things that you never learned during onboarding, but you actually only did when you started doing the job independently? And would it have been more useful if we gave you that stuff now? So there's, yeah, there's lots of little things where people can just think, I guess it goes back to your earlier point, but how do we think like other industries or departments or teams in the company that are doing the thing we want to do and then apply that? to this. So yeah, if we were selling a product, we would be really transparent about the, the benefits and the outcomes and your involvement, but we don't do that in job description. We think about feedback from like, you know, say market researchers, we would do that. We would look at it over a longer term period, but we're not applying that to onboarding. So I think that maybe is the easiest takeaway is just to be honest about the, the job at hand, be transparent, leverage other industries and techniques and, and do it over a longer time period, I guess. Yeah. No,
0: I love it. I love that. Right, We are pretty much almost out of time. So what I'm going to do is get you to just pray see But also, yeah. we want people to read the uh, the blog, yeah. as you said, and uh, and I'll reiterate, we'll put it in the show notes. Just give us a bit of a, a, a synopsis of points um, six, six and seven. seven, which are, of course, well-being being more than a webinar or week of support. Yeah. And then the uh, seventh one is building skills that can't be bought or
1: borrowed. So let's yeah. start on that
0: well-being piece, then, and give our, our listeners a kind of a helicopter view as to what you guys were talking about there?
1: Yeah, this one could be summed up quite easily. So uh, quite sadly, there was nothing new here in the sense that employee stress is at an all-time high. Burnout is more and more common. The work stress is spilling into people's personal lives. But I guess the interesting angle that people might not have seen that much data around before is the financial stresses that are affecting the way people work. So 59% of respondents in a uh, Employment Hero study said they were stressed about their monetary situation. 46% said they were uncomfortable talking about it at work. And 17% felt they were resigned to the fact there was nothing their employer could do. So yeah, employees are really struggling with the financial pressures that they're under now and how that influences how they work. And there's a responsibility for employers to think about how they can help support that or maybe tackle it or the ways they do it as part of their wellbeing strategy rather than just the token efforts, which is why the webinar and week of support stuff come into it. And yeah, I guess just to summarize, it would be, again, that's one of the ones you have to tackle internally. If people are reluctant to have that conversation from the start, because it's a sensitive subject, you need to approach it in a way that makes sense for your culture, your people, the people you know, you know. Yeah, that's a, a quick summary of that one. And then the last one can be summarized really quickly by the fact that we need to build skills now because we can't buy or borrow. So the economic downturn is having the impact that we are seeing in hiring freezes and redundancy. So that means that we can't hire, which is the buy talent and redundancies, we're we're possibly losing people. So we have to do more with less. And then if we have less budget, we're also unlikely to be able to get freelancers and contractors in to plug skills gaps in the short term. So although it presents a lot of challenges for HR and L&D, it's also an opportunity for us to build skills internally and help support us still to reach our goals, even when we can't hire or or rent or, you know, like use freelancers or contractors, basically. And if we can do that now, we'll make a better case for L&D because when resources are less strapped, it's most important for us to focus on the things that add value and how we can build the skills internally to reach the goals and add value and continue supporting the business, even though we might be doing more with less. That's absolutely brilliant. And thank you very much for coming on today.
0: It's absolutely fascinating listening to those trends. As I've said a couple of times, we will put that in the show notes so you can access it. I definitely recommend having a read. There's some really good stuff in there. There's links into um, the podcast that the guys at Now do as well, and other content pieces. So it's 100% worth your time. I would certainly recommend it. Gary, superb getting you on again. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, we will look forward to the video of you doing a Zumba in the
1: How Now offices at some stage in the near future. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, actually, if people can, um, one thing I'm trying to do is add more. HR and L&D people on on LinkedIn and my social and uh, the Zumba video will come but in the short term if you can connect with me I'd really appreciate it so uh, we can have If we
0: can get 500 new followers for Gary he will do a Zumba video
1: (laughs) That's the deal
0: (laughs) Of course you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts Uh, we're on all of the major channels and you can access it through the Lace Partners website which is on lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast that'll take you to our podcast feed but if you go to the insights section you'll see a whole host of the different bits of content that we've got Sorry, just want to iterate uh, before we uh, jump off today uh, where people can find How Now and the bits and bobs that you guys get on with?
1: Yeah, definitely. So if you just go to gethownow.com, follow How Now on LinkedIn, we follow us on YouTube or wherever you get your pods, you can search for lnd Disrupt, which is the podcast Chris just mentioned. Cool. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, it's been great to
0: have you on. Thank you very much, listener, for listening in. We hope you've uh, enjoyed it as much as Gary and I have. And hopefully we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast. Bye-bye.